0: But Daniel made up in his mind that he would not defile himself with the royal delicacies or the royal wine. He therefore asked the overseer of the court officials for permission not to defile himself. But that's a strong contrast. But none of this would ever be successful in Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's life because they had already determined in their mind not for it to be successful there's something very powerful going on here. There's two main things that I see here. One is that this is what I tell my students all the time. I don't know how often they actually listen and hear this. And this is one of the things I'm trying to teach my girls is that most of your success in maintaining your identity in Christ in the culture has to do with two things, knowing the word of God and who God is very well. And two, already determining before the temptation or the culture comes in how you're going to act and respond. Many times the reason we're led astray or tempted into something that we never thought we would do or would want to do or we end up in a place that we didn't want to be is because we do not know the Word of God well enough for those things to flood in our head or to shape our worldview, or to make us absolutely secure in our identity of who we are in Christ and what our worldview is, or we haven't pre-thought what I might face. This is why I tell my students. You're going to be tempted with the big things, alcohol, sex, and drugs, and that kind of stuff. You're also going to be tempted with what we think are the minor things, however I think they're the most destructive, is just hanging out with that group and thinking like them and acting like them and, and speaking to your friends in callous and cold and slanderous ways, because that's just funny and humorous. And those things I feel like are way more destructive in a subtle way. And if you ever already thought like, I'm gonna, those people are going to come into my life. How am I going to respond to them? I mean, this is why we do fire drills. Because when the fire comes in and you're panicking and freaking out, you're not going to run to that sign as the smoke is billowing down on you and try to, okay, where am I going to go? This is why military and police officers practice shooting guns over and over again. Because when all that chaos is coming at you, it's got to be muscle memory. And so the more likely that you are to sit and say, you know what, I know the world that I live in. I've had the youth pastors speak to me. I've had friends in my own life at work and corporations, and I've seen the things that they've been tempted with at Nationwide or Chase or IBM or Amazon or whatever, wherever you work. I've already seen what can be the temptation. I've already seen where people get tripped up. How am I going to respond? And you drill it. You work through it. You talk with your fellow believers or your spouse or your friends, and you say, Help me think this through more clearly. Help me think like a Christian would, like a worldview would. And how would I react? Well, what a, Can you think of anything that they might throw at me? And the more you think through this stuff and the more you say it out loud, that's very important too, then the more likely you are to default to your plan of action. When it comes at you and you've never thought through it, then there's temptations, there's peer pressure, there's a desire to be successful, to make money, to whatever it is. And those are powerful emotions. And the will to do what is right and please God is not an emotion that floods us, like the emotion to be accepted and not rejected or to miss on a promotion or the things I would like to accomplish in life. And the more you can think through this in advance, then the more likely you are to default to your plan of action when all that comes. And the more likely you're not to be surprised when they say this or do this, the more likely you're to think, and I know I might lose my job, but you know what? I'm okay with that because this is worth it. And that moment you're like, oh, is this worth this? Is this, is this uh, and you're, you're floundering. But at home you've already thought, you know what? We live in a day and age where there's other options, God is good, and the more you think there's, and that's what it says, Daniel made up in his mind that he would not, be defi- would not defile himself. I guarantee you this did not happen in that moment. There's an intentionality and a pre-thought that was already there. And one of the things that makes Daniel so successful is that he's intentional in his actions. And that's important because is Nebuchadnezzar highly intentional and pre-planned and effectual in what he's trying to do? Yes. And the only way you can fight that intentionality and that well oiled machine is with your own intentionality. And that's important. You do not become the greatest empire in the entire world that steamrolled over everyone and controls all governments without being intentional and well oiled in your system. And Daniel and his friends have to match that and their intentionality and their devotion to God and their worldview with Him. And this is why being trained in the Word of God being prayer relationally with who God is, knowing your identity and belonging to him, and pre-thinking your responses are so important and essential for being successful in this world. And I'm not saying that you cannot be successful if you don't do that, but it makes it a whole lot harder. And it makes it a lot more, for lack of a better phrase, rolling of the dice, so to speak. Because emotions are powerful. Emotions are powerful, and they can take us a lot of directions that we would never have thought that we would have gone. And I think by this time in our lives, we know that. We can look at examples and see that. Emotions are good. Emotions are are beneficial. They're from God. They're absolutely necessary for who we are and how to direct our lives. But they must not rule us and determine all of our decisions. And that's where we see Daniel here. He would not defile himself says he would not defile himself with the meat and the wine. But we don't know exactly what is wrong with this that he would say I would not do it. We don't know exactly what is defiling about this because it doesn't seem to fit anywhere into the Mosaic law. He's determined that he will not defile himself with the meat and the wine. Now the first thing I must say is this has nothing to do with vegetarian versus meat diet. Some people have had to make this, a, try to twist this into see to be godly, and to be biblical is to be a vegetarian. Now, listen, there's nothing wrong with being a vegetarian. You can, if, there's lots of healthy reasons to be a vegetarian. There are a lot, and I, I get that you can be a vegetarian because it's healthier than eating meat all the time, and technically we do eat way more meat than what we're supposed to as Americans. It's, it's okay to be a vegetarian because you don't like the way the animals have been treated. I totally respect that. It's totally to be okay if you're vegetarian because you're just kind of grossed out by animals and the taste of it. That's okay. I'm not saying vegetarianism is bad, but don't try to twist this into a godliness as vegetarianism. And many Christians have. And that is a completely inappropriate use of the passage and violates the context. What does it mean that Daniel refused to partake of the meat and wine? Like, what is it that he thought would defile him? Well, We're not completely sure what his reason was, but there's three possibilities that scholars have kind of come up with. The first possibility is that this meat that he's refusing to eat has been sacrificed in the temple of the pagan gods and sacrificed to them. And so he doesn't want to eat it because of the association with the pagan gods. The problem with this is, is that the grain that he's eating, the vegetables, would have also been sacrificed to the pagan gods in the temple. And most likely only the king would actually be eating that particular meat and grain because he would be the only one worthy of it in a priestly kingship kind of a sense in Babylon. So it doesn't seem to quite fit. The second possibility of the word defilement here is that the Mosaic law strictly forbid this kind of meat. In the Mosaic law, there's clean and unclean meats or animals that you can and cannot eat. And so some have suggested that this meat was unclean animals that he shouldn't be allowed to eat. The problem is nowhere does it suggest here what kind of meats are involved or what animals are involved. And there's nothing in the Mosaic law forbidding wine as unclean or not allowed to drink. In fact, wine, the libation offering, was one of the offerings in the book of Leviticus that had to be offered to Yahweh. So that doesn't seem to fit here either. A third possibility, and the most likely, is that this is the meat that is associated with the palace, and it would involve him eating the meat in the palace at the table of the king. Not exactly the table that Nebuchadnezzar sat at and ate, but a table within his palace, and it could communicate a covenant. In the Bible, specifically like Genesis 31 forty four through fifty four and Exodus twenty-four, one through eleven, eating meals with somebody communicates a covenant relationship, that we're family, that we're we're in partnership, and that we are about the same thing, the same goal or the same idea. And so Daniel most likely does not want to eat the meat because it would communicate covenant. Now the grain would not be seen as an idea of a covenant because usually these covenants were made by sacrificing or killing an animal. And the animal specifically eating of it is what represented the covenant more so than eating some kind of vegetable. And so that could be the idea is that Daniel's saying, okay, it's one thing for me to be educated by you and taken by you. I will be your friend. I will witness to you as we see later in the chap- later chapters. But it's another thing for me to say that we're actually in a covenant with each other and that I'm actually of the same mindset as you when it comes to our worldview. It could be that, or maybe even a possibility of a mixture of all three of these together, that when you layer these all together, it's not that one makes him feel like he's defiling himself, but it's all of them coming together somehow increases that chance of his conviction that he will be defiled. And always there's this idea that there may be something going on in the culture or in his unique situation that the author assumes the original reader knows, but we as Americans, much later, do not know and understand fully what's going on here. Like I already mentioned before, a huge testimony to Daniel's character is his unwillingness to be defiled by the culture and to compromise on his allegiance to Yahweh and what it means to be faithful to Yahweh. But the other thing that's really amazing here and really stands out in his character is the way that he treats the official. This official is babylon he represents babylon he represents the worldview. he represents the babylon that came in and kidnapped him and maybe even killed some of his family members and brought daniel here by force and has made him a refugee and is now brainwashing him and we we saw in world war ii when when the the germans were attacking england and we made an alliance with england and then the the japanese bombed pearl harbor that there was a great hostility towards all German Americans and Japanese Americans in America. Not that every single American treated them poorly, but overall our government and many people thought, well, if you're from Germany and you're a German, or you're from Japan and you're a Japanese, then that means that you're bad, just like all those other Japanese and Germans that are doing this in the war. And we lumped everybody into the same ethnicity as if, if you're from that ethnicity, you're just like those people over there in the war. And we mistreated them. That is human nature. That is easy for us to fall into. And Daniel could have easily done that. And many people would say he's completely justified and hating and mistreating and rebuking and refusing to submit to a man who is a Babylonian who's doing all this to him. But that's not what we see from Daniel. When we see Daniel, he's actually willing to work out a deal with this guy. It says in verse 9, Then God made the overseer of the court official sympathetic to Daniel. But he responded to Daniel, I fear my master, the king. He is the one who has decided your food and drink. What would happen if he saw that you looked malnourished in comparison to the other young men your age? If that happened, you would endanger my life with the king. Then Daniel spoke to the warden, whom the overseer of the court officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test your servants for ten days by providing us with some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who are eating the royal delicacies. Deal with us in light of what you have seen. So the warden agreed to their proposal and tested them for ten days. Because Daniel was willing to maintain his allegiance to God higher than any other allegiance in the world... God re-blessed him by making the warden sympathetic to him, by putting the warden, making the warden see Daniel in a favorable way. This is Daniel's reward. So the official basically responds and says, Yeah, but my life is on the line too. Yeah, I'm a part of Babylon and I'm part of the government and and the, the machinery of this state. However, like my life is on the line. The, the king expects certain results from you that he expects me to make happen, to implement in your lives. And if he doesn't see those results at certain checkpoints, then it's my head on the chopping block, so to speak. Or to be more accurate, it's me in the fiery furnace, as we see later. My life is just as that much risk as yours if this doesn't go well. So Daniel sees that, and he's compassionate towards his plight. And he's willing to make a deal with this man. He's willing to test this out for 10 days and says, okay, 10 days, you've got three years to change me. Give me 10 days. If you don't see improvements, if you don't see benefits from my diet in the next 10 days, then I will stop doing this, and I will go your path so that you don't lose your head. Either way, at the end... I'm going to be what the king expects, and you'll be okay. He is willing to love this man. He's willing to treat him with respect. He's willing to be compassionate towards him and try to figure out a way where both of them will work out. This is a huge testimony. He's not just standing on his principles and saying, I will not move. He's doing it in a loving, compassionate way to those who are trying to move him, his enemies, so to speak. He's willing to take their lives seriously and value them. This is big. Because right now what we're seeing in the culture and what we've seen for a while is that a lot of people have principles on both sides of the spectrum. But when they maintain their spectrum When they maintain their principles, they yell and scream and shout down the other people. They condemn them and label them and shame them. This is what we're seeing in the culture. There's so much, I have these views and I believe these views are right. And because you disagree with me. I'm going to shame you. I'm going to scream you down. I'm going to call you a Nazi. I'm going to call you horrible, evil things. And we're not friends. And that's just between people who disagree with each other, not people who have been literally personally mistreated by the other person because of where they've come from. And Daniel is loving. And so Daniel here has very well illustrated the idea of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. We see Daniel loving God above all other things by his unwillingness to be defiled and compromise his allegiance to Yahweh. At the same time, he's loving his neighbor, his, even his own enemy, as himself, where he's maintaining his respect for this man, his compassion, his love, and he wants to see both things succeed, his relationship with God and his relationship with this man. And this is a huge testimony to what it means to stick to your principles, but also demonstrate the character of Christ to people. And this is what we even saw in Christ's life. He did not back off his principles, but he held them in a very loving, very compassionate way to the people around him. I can't stress enough how important this is to see this example in Daniel. And we're going to continue to see it, and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, too. Because we don't have a lot of examples of that in our culture anymore. And not that no Christians are doing this, but they're not making the news. They're not the ones being held up on the media as this is what it means to conduct yourselves publicly in disagreements. And we need more examples like this in our culture. So at the end of the time of the trial, they came back, to see how Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had performed. In verse 15, it says, At the end of 10 days, their appearance was better and their bodies were healthier than all the young men who had been eating the royal delicacies. So the warden removed the delicacies and the wine from their diet, and he gave them a diet of veg- vegetables instead. Now as for these four young men, God endowed them with knowledge and skill and all sorts of literature and wisdom, and Daniel had insight into all kinds of visions and dreams. As a result of Daniel's faithfulness and commitment to Yahweh, not only did Yahweh make the court official favorable towards Daniel, but he also blessed Daniel with a superiority of his health his wisdom, his skills, his intelligence, and performance. He blessed Daniel. Because Daniel succeeding here is a huge testimony to his faith in God. The more that Daniel succeeds, the more glory that Yahweh is going to get, and the more that these Babylonians are going to see the superiority of Yahweh and want to know who this God is, And maybe even eventually make this God their God. And this is the powerful testimony that we have here. Daniel is faithful to Yahweh. He's faithful to his neighbor. And God blesses him. He succeeds in the areas of his life that he needs to succeed in order to be a testimony and a witness to the superiority of Yahweh in his life compared to all the other gods. Now, God doesn't promise that if you're faithful to him, you're going to be healthier and more intelligent and all that kind of stuff and more skilled than everybody else around you. That's not what this message is saying. What God is promising you, though, is that if you are faithful to him, he will make you successful in the areas of your life that you need to be successful in in order to be a successful witness to Yahweh and who he is and why he's superior. In this case, the test is their physical health, their performance, and their intelligence and This is specifically what these pagans are looking at. so this is where God blesses Daniel so that the pagans will see this because this is what they value at this moment, and then they can be pointed to God in other areas of your life. It may just be that you handle your finances better than other people, depending on if you're if you're like an accounting agency. Or that you are more loving and a better listener and can handle people's problems better if you're in the world of psychology. We will all succeed and flourish in the area that is unique and specific to us that will give glory to Yahweh and His superiority and why people should turn to Him. If we are faithful and obedient to Yahweh above all other things. Now here's the interesting thing. You see these words here. There's a play on words here with the word put in English. And in the Hebrew, it's wayesim. And wayesim is the English word put. And so what we see here is that the court official had put the names on the Judeans. In response, Daniel put it on his heart to not eat the king's food and wine. So Babylon is trying to put a new identity on Daniel. But Daniel is responding by putting on his heart that he's not allowing his identity in God to be changed. And I think this is one of the other keys of his success, is that Daniel sees his identity in God above all other things. It's not his identity as an Israelite. It's not his identity as a good person. It's not his identity as an intelligent person. It's his identity in Yahweh as his God. And because he put that identity on himself, he was not able to be transformed or brainwashed into adopting a different identity. And this is one of the most important things That you need to nurture and flourish in your own life is your identity in Christ. The more you have your identity in Christ and you see yourself in connection to Him, the much harder it will be for the world to put a different identity on you. That you're dumb. Or that you are a Republican or a Democrat or an American or that you're, you're a successful businessman or you're, or you're, you're unathletic or you are athletic, you're wealthy or you're poor. These identities won't stick to you and they won't change you if you are rooted in your identity in Christ. And I think that's a very important thing to see here that the narrator is communicating with this word put in Daniel's life and Daniel's story. Verse 18 When the time appointed by the king arrived, the overseer of the court officials brought them into Nebuchadnezzar's presence. And when the king spoke with them, he did not find among the entire group anyone like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And every matter of wisdom and insight the king asked them about, he found them to be ten times better than any of the magicians, astrologers that were in his entire empire. Now Daniel lived on until the first year of Cyrus the Second, the king. So when the king, Nebuchadnezzar Second came in and he saw these four men, he was impressed. He didn't see anyone that was anywhere close to their equals. In fact, it says they were ten times better in their wisdom and their their ability to advise the king than anyone else. Now, what makes this so unique is that normally what he would do with these Jews is he would send them back to Israel, and they would then promote the interest of Babylon in Israel. Or he might send them somewhere else, like maybe into other Israelite refugee camps or cities or neighborhoods or whatever. But instead, because he saw such a superiority in them, he brought them into his own royal court and made them his own advisors. This is huge, because in the ancient world, most of the nations looked at the area, Syria. Syria is that whole strip of land on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, which we would know as Phoenicia, way up in the north, and Aram, and then going down into Israel and then down into Edom and Moab. That would be the ancient version. Today it would be what we know as the countries of Syria and Lebanon and Jordan and Israel and the Gaza Strip and all that kind of stuff. That whole region is considered Syrians, and they were mostly Semitic people. And many of these nations, these powerful kings, looked down on Semitic people. They were very prejudiced, very discriminating against these people in those areas. And 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 so for him to take Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and promote them up as his own advisors would be almost the equivalent of a white plantation slave owner during the time of the Civil War promoting a black slave up to be his most trusted advisor his entire plantation and actually take his advice and run things and do things based on what he said. This is the same thing that we saw with Joseph. The Egyptians viewed Semitic people and Hebrews in a very derogatory kind of a way, in a very discriminating kind of way. And he brings Joseph up to be the second most powerful person in the kingdom. And this shows you how God can overcome any of those prejudices and any of those stereotypes when you are committed to Yahweh and he allows you to flourish. And then people see that and they, they look beyond all those stereotypes and prejudices and they, they're willing to take your advice. Now, like I said, this is not a promise and a guarantee that this will happen every time, because Christ also makes it clear that the world will hate you because they first hate Him. But that's the world in general. But there are always exceptions to that as we enter into, indiv- into the lives of individual people, and individual people respond in their own ways. But notice here what the king focuses on here is their wisdom and their insight, and that they're far superior to the magicians and the astrologers. Now this is huge, because all throughout the Bible, there's a polemic between Yahweh and the pagan gods. And we see this at different times. So in the creation account, the pagan gods have a way that they create the world, and then Yahweh talks about how he creates the world, and he shows himself to be superior to them, and the way that he creates the world different from them. And then we see this with the Egyptians. As the Exodus is happening, the gods, the Jews are worshiping the Egyptian gods, according to the Bible, and they're living in Egypt, and the Egyptians see themselves superior to all their cultures, and yet God comes in with ten plagues, and those plagues are a specific attack against the different gods of Egypt, the most powerful ones, and God is showing himself to be superior to those gods by the way that he can control nature, and they can't. We see the same thing with Baal. But all is a storm god of the Canaanites. And so with Elijah, God makes the rain stop and there's no rain for three years, and then the contest on Mount Carmel becomes who can bring the rain, the storm, lightning. And whatever God can do, that is the more superior God. And so we see this polemic over and over and over again where God takes what those gods are known to be the best and or the culture values the most, and he does it better. And to a far greater superior extent than them to show that he is the more true God. And so in the Babylonian culture, wisdom is being valued higher than anything else. And the ancient world, it had more to do or the ancient world, the First Testament, the early First Testament, had more to do with the God's ability to protect you, or the God's ability to provide grain, or the God's ability to provide children. That's what we see with Abraham, or the rain, crops. that's what we see with Elijah. But with the Babylonians at this time period, wisdom and knowledge is becoming much greater. Not that that wasn't valued back then, but it's the culture is starting to move towards this wisdom and knowledge is what brings power. And it's starting to be valued more than anything, like it is in America today. And so this is where God shows Daniel to be superior. And if, it's, if this is about race car driving, then Daniel would be a superior race car driver. But this is about wisdom, and that's what he sees. But not only will it show that Yahweh is far superior god of wisdom than Nebuchadnezzar II's gods that he follows, but it also allows Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to get into the royal court of Nebuchadnezzar II and have an even greater witness and influence on people, all because Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were faithful to Yahweh and faithful to their covenant relationship with Yahweh and he blessed them. And this is a huge message, a huge testimony to being faithful to Yahweh and Yahweh can use you in a powerful witness. So Daniel is now a believer in Yahweh who places Yahweh higher than everything else, even the Babylonian state. And now he's an to the babylonian state the most pagan man in the ancient world this time the most powerful man in the ancient world this time the most war thirsty power hungry man in the ancient world this time now i don't mean that like literally like he is the man but he is the one that history has recorded as the most powerful most pagan most warlike king who's oppressing and dominating other people. And Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are now his advisor. And Daniel's in a place where he's going to influence a very pagan man who also has a huge influence on hundreds of thousands of people in his empire and his kingdom. He is going to be used to fight the corruption and to fight the paganism in this empire. And it says right off the bat, that he was there all the way to Cyrus, the, Cyrus II. So he's going to make it through several Babylonian kings after Nebuchadnezzar. And then when the Persian Empire comes in, and normally Persian the new empire would get rid of all the advisors and kill them and set up their government, Cyrus II is going to see something in Daniel and keep him and maintain Daniel's position as being an advisor all throughout his life. And this says something about how God is rewarding Daniel and how God is using Daniel because of Daniel's allegiance to God and his desire to maintain his character. And I know I'm repeating this a lot, this allegiance and character, but that's huge because these are the things that God has really valued throughout the Bible and the law. And this is what the First Testament people, a lot of them like in the time period of the kings, And a lot of the the people of Israel have failed to do. This is why they went into exile. Because they did not maintain their allegiance and their character and their love of other people. And now after the whole book of Kings and seeing so many people fail, the vast majority, we finally have an example of a man who is succeeding. And even in our own culture, it's hard to find men and women in prominent places that are shining examples of allegiance to Yahweh, character, and love of other people. And so I'm repeating this a lot for a reason, because this is what we need in our culture today. In all the chapters, the first six chapters of Daniel that we're going through, you're going to see Daniel or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah facing a conflict. And these conflicts will challenge their faith in Yahweh, tempt them to walk away from Yahweh, and compromise with the culture. And we're going to see how they're going to handle each conflict. And each conflict brings like a unique scenario. And in this particular chapter, the conflict or the problem does not arise because it, the Babylonians hate the Jews necessarily. It do not, does, does not arise because they're hostile and persecuting the Jews. We don't see that. So this is not a story of Daniel and his friends being persecuted or being hated or people treating them in a hostile way, and they have to resist that persecution and, and deal with that. What we see here is that the Babylonians actually believe that they're giving Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah the best. They believe that they're offering the best education, the best food, the best resources, the best gyms and all this kind of stuff. They want these men to succeed. They want them to thrive because if they succeed and thrive, then they're useful to the Babylonian state and their own purposes. So they actually don't, they're not opposing these men. They're not opposing Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Nazariah. They're not hostile to her. They believe they're benefiting them. And so this isn't conflict of hatred or persecution. The conflict actually comes with Daniel's, own desire to not violate his conscience. The conflict is internal. The conflict is just the culture itself. Not that the culture is opposed to Daniel and his friends, but that the culture is opposed to the will of God. It's opposed to the law of God. It's opposed to the character of God. It's opposed to what it means to love. And Daniel himself has created a conflict by the refusal to compromise with the culture and so here we see a person who's refusing to assimilate which will then cause him to drift away from Yahweh and his faith and then this is a matter of his conscience and as a result he doesn't make a political scandal out of it he doesn't talk about how evil the culture is because it wants to do this to him and it's oppressing him and it's trying to make him act this way and and all everything's going to be screwed up because of the Babylonians He doesn't, like I mentioned before in the introduction, he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't scream at them. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't make it into a scandal that makes the news and everybody is like dividing pro-Daniel or anti-Daniel because he's made this a scandal. He basically quietly in his heart says, I'm not going to do this. And he quietly treats the people with love and respect and the conflict is overcome with his quiet faithfulness to Yahweh and his quiet love of his neighbor. And I think that's an important thing to see as we now see an example of when the culture isn't actually against you or opposed to you, but it's more just a matter of not assimilating or adopting its views, this is a great example of what it means to deal with that conflict and that struggle internally in your conscience and how to approach people as you deal with it and a loving way to them and a loving way to Yahweh. And so this is the introduction. This shows you what kind of a person these four men are. This is their character. And so what this chapter was primarily focused on was the character of these four men. And the next chapters of two, three, four, five, six. What we're going to see is how they're able to deal with different conflicts that will come up. And how they're able to be successful and maintain their faith because of their allegiance to Yahweh and their character that is demonstrated here in this first chapter.